Hadn't got a little map yet of the walls. Raise your hand, I'll bring you one if you need one. I gave these out last week. We've been talking about the walls, and tonight, in particular, we're going to be talking about a lot of the gates and some of the different sections of the wall. And so, this will just give you an idea of what the, uh, what the walls look like. Now, for anybody who is listening online, you can just do an internet search of Nehemiah and the walls of Jerusalem and, and find what it looks like to have an idea. But uh, some of these things, some of these names we'll mention tonight, we're not going to break down every gate and every part of the wall, but some of these you'll hear mentioned. And some of them on your sheet may be different maybe than the name that I call them by because different translations may, may use a little bit different wording there, but most of them will be will be the same. Now, you'll need to know these for the test as well as all the names we're about to read tonight. Uh, now, what we're going to do is, I hate, I really hate not to cover a whole chapter or, or two chapters because sometimes the information in the chapters seem, it's kind of boring, I guess, for lack of a better term. It's just kind of a lot of repetition of the same thing there's a bunch of people in, in, this, in, this, in this particular chapter in Nehemiah, a bunch of people, and they worked on this section of the wall, and the next bunch of people worked on this section of the wall, and the next bunch of people worked on that section of the wall. I just pretty much summarized the whole chapter 3. I hate for us not to read it, though. I hate for us just to skip it. And so we won't go through and, and, and really talk too much about all the different, different sections of the wall, but we'll read through the whole chapter... And maybe there's some good application we can get when we talk about these different things, about these gates and about these doors and about these walls. And so we'll read through all of Nehemiah 3. It's not terribly long. And uh, then we'll, we'll talk about what we read just a little bit. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father God, we come to you tonight, and we thank you for these good words. And I pray that you just would be with me, that I would do a good job to preach and teach. Help us as we read through all these gates and all these crazy names that we just kind of understand what's going on, dear Lord. You're, 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 you're with Nehemiah and the people, and, and they're rebuilding these walls. And, and in the midst of kind of that repetition, don't let us miss that point of the power uh, and, and your presence with them as they work, dear Lord. So I pray that you help us to be focused, pay attention, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us tonight in these words. In Jesus' name I pray it. Amen. Amen. All right, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priest, began rebuilding the sheep gate. They dedicated it and installed its doors. After building the, t the wall of the, to the tower of the hundred and the tower of Hananel, they dedicated it. The men of Jericho built next to Eliashib, and next to them, Zechar, son of Emery, built. Now, what you're going to notice as we begin to go through these gates as we go along is in the order that they are listed, they are going to go counterclockwise. So we are going to start at the fish gate, which you see at the top right corner of your picture there, and all of the ones that follow are going to go counterclockwise around there. Now, like I said, we're not necessarily going to cover every single thing that's on this map, but a lot of these things you see uh, will will you'll notice on your map. Now, uh, the first, one of the first gates we're going to see is called the Old Gate, and on your map it's called uh, Yeshana. Now, some of your translations may say Yeshana. That simply means old, and so it's the same gate. Uh, another difference you may see is, is on your map you see the buttress kind of on the left side there at the bottom part of the, of the map. 
And when we get to the, the part where it talks about the angle, the armory, the angle, well, that's talking about that buttress there. And so that language is a little different. Uh, we'll, we'll see when we get uh, down to the inspection gate at the end. On your map, all the way at the bottom right corner, you see the muster gate. And so those words are going to be a little different than maybe what's on your map, but I wanted you to know what those, what those words were. And also, it tells you with these different landmarks where you find the scriptures that talk about these. And so some of these you'll see in the scriptures we see tonight, and some of them you may see other passages where these are mentioned that we don't necessarily talk about tonight. Uh, but... There, uh, most of the things that we that we that we talk about tonight are probably uh, going to be on this map. Actually, they may all be on this map. Uh, but anyway, we will we will continue on and read about these gates and these walls that are being rebuilt. All right, verse three. The son the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them. Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, made repairs. Beside them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, made repairs. Next to them, Zedek, son of Baaneh, made repairs. Beside them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. Joiah, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Besoadiah, repaired the old gate. They rebuilt it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, the repairs were done by Melatiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Maranathite, and the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, who were under the authority of the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River. After him, Uzael, son of Herahiah, the goldsmith, made repairs, and next to him, Hananiah, son of the perfumer, made repairs. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, son of Hur, ruled over half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. After them, Jediah, son of Haramath, made repairs across from his house. Next to him, Hadash, the son of Hashabaniah, made repairs. Malchijah, son of Haram, and Hashab, son of Pahathamoab, made repairs to another section, as well as to the tower of the ovens. Beside him, Shalom, son of Heloesh, ruled over half the district of Jerusalem, made ruler over half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars and repaired 500 yards of the wall to the dung gate. Melchijah, son of Rechab, ruler over the district of Beth-Hakerim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Shalon, son of Kolhezah, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and roofed it. Then he installed its doors, bolts, and bars. He also made repairs to the wall of the pool of Shelah near the king's garden, as far as the stairs that descend from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler over half the district of Beth Zor, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the warriors. 
Next to him, the Levites made repairs under Rehum, son of Bani. Besides him, Hashabiah, ruler over half the district of, of Keilah, made repairs for his district. After him, their fellow Levites made repairs under Benui, son of Hinadad, ruler over half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, made repairs to another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the angle. After him, Baruch, son of Zabai, diligently repaired another section from the angle to the door of the house of Elishib, the priest. Beside him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, made repairs to another section from the door of Eliashib's house to the end of his house. And next to him, the priest from the surrounding area made repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs opposite their house. Beside them, Azariah, son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. After him, Benui, son of Hinadad, made repairs to another section from the house of Azariah to the angle and the corner. Palal, son of Uzziah, made repairs opposite the angle and tower that juts from the upper palace of the king by the courtyard of the guard. Beside him, Pedadiah, son of Parash, and the temple servants living in Ophel made repairs opposite the water gate toward the east and the tower that juts out. Next to him, the Tekoites made repairs to another section from a point opposite the great tower that juts out as far as the wall of Ophel. Each of the priests made repairs above the house gate, excuse me, the horse gate, each opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, son of Emmer, made repairs opposite his house. And beside him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah of, Shem of Shelemiah and Hanun, the sixth son of Zelath, made repairs to another section. After them, Meshalom, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his room. Next to him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs to the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate. And as far as the upper room of the corner, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs between the upper room and the corner of the sheep gate. Whew, that was a lot of crazy names right there. I'm going to tell you what. We made it though, but, but here we see that progress is being made. Now, Nehemiah's heart was broke when he found out the condition of Jerusalem. The king let him go back. He went back last week. He kind of made a round around to see what was going on. And then he come back and told everybody, here's what the Lord's put on my heart. We're going to rebuild these walls. And everybody said, let's do it. We're ready to go. And so here we have a list of a lot of people. And all of these workers, they got together. And they each had their own little sections. And they began to do work on these walls. And they began to build these walls up and they begin to repair these gates and a lot of these gates the name is kind of self-explanatory as to what the gate was for the fish gate for instance is where the fish would be brought in the sheep gate is where the sheep uh, would be brought in uh, and we kind of see these different things the dung gate is where the gate uh, where, where the dung would be taken out the valley gate was a gate that uh, looked out across the valley the water gate was where they brought water in and out so each of these gates had a purpose now if you, if you look on the back of your sheet, you'll see that, bl that black and white picture with that kind of lighter, bigger outline. Well, that was the, the bigger outline of what Jerusalem used to be. 
And there are some different gates. I don't think that they're on this printout. I'm not sure if they are or not. But, but there are some different gates, if, if, you, if you're reading, uh, that, that would have gone around that bigger section. But in, in the case of Nehemiah, these gates that we see mentioned, we kind of get an idea of what they were for based on their name and how they were laid out. Now, it's very important for Jerusalem to have these walls and to have these gates. Walls are good. Walls are good to either keep somebody in or to keep somebody out. And so sometimes we use our walls for, for whatever we may, may need. There are times that we take these walls and take these, these doors, gates if we can call them that, and we lock them up. Why? Because we want to stay in and we want to keep other people out. There are other times that the doors are open and people can go freely. And so there are times that they need to be closed, times that they need to be open. But there's a certain protection, there's a certain security there, and there's a certain freedom there. Because with the gate there, those who need to come in and out can come in and out. But when someone arrives that does not need to come in, the gate can be shut. And so they are rebuilding these walls and they are rebuilding these gates against all odds. Now we remember last week we saw that there was some enemies that they had. And we'll, we'll learn more about them as we read along. But, but this process has begun and it is going well. But one, one, one word that we see a lot in this passage, especially in, the, in probably the first two-thirds of it, is the word, the door, the doors, especially in those first few gates. They repaired the doors. They repaired the gates, the bolts and the bars. You saw that phrase repeated a lot. Now, I don't know why it's not mentioned in the rest of them, except for the fact that maybe those gates were not as damaged. Maybe there were some gates that were still standing that did not, did not uh, uh, require the same kind of repair as others. And so that may be why those aren't mentioned. But, but we see a lot of mention there about the doors and about the gates. And as I was reading this passage, I couldn't help but think about Jesus in John chapter 10. Now, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know that necessarily uh, this, this passage is pointing forward to that, uh, but at least in my mind, I, I made a connection that, hey, when we're talking about walls, when we're talking about protection, when we're talking about doors, Jesus is the first thing that came to my mind, and rightfully so. He should be when we read Scripture. And so if you want to flip to John chapter 10, John chapter 10, and the same language about the door as we've been talking about, is, is used about Jesus here. Jesus is the door in this passage. Now, a little bit of context to what's going on in John chapter 10 is the story that happened in John chapter 9. Now, I would encourage you to read that if you've never read the story. It's about a, a blind guy that Jesus healed. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were livid that Jesus had healed this guy because they were convinced that the guy was blind because of sin. And Jesus didn't agree with that. And they, and they were mad because Jesus healed him and they didn't believe the guy. They wanted to know who healed him. He kept telling them Jesus and they didn't want to hear it. They asked his parents, was he really blind? They didn't believe it. They wanted to explain away that miracle. They wanted to not listen to Jesus in any way possible. And the blind man finally told them, look, I don't know nothing about what you guys are saying, but I know this, I was blind and he made me see. And who else is doing that? They were saying Jesus was demon-possessed and all kind of stuff. And at the end of the passage, Jesus was talking to them about being blind. And he tells them at the end of chapter 9, it says in verse 42, he says, 
If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now you say, we see, your sin remains. So the Pharisees, they ask him, are we blind? And Jesus says, if you were blind, you wouldn't have seen if you didn't know any better. But, but what he's saying is, but now you say, we see, your sin remains. Well, what did that mean? It meant that they said, we see and know everything for ourselves. We don't need you, Jesus. And so they were in bad shape. They weren't, they weren't blind because they, they knew the word of God. But they thought they knew everything. They thought, they said, we see, we know it all. But they didn't think they knew Jesus. So they didn't know much at all, as much as they thought. And so in that sense, they were blind. And so they were, of course, not happy with Jesus. And Jesus continues on here in John chapter 10 with that idea in mind. He says in verse 1, I assure you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they recognize his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't recognize the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this illustration, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Now here Jesus uses a, an illustration about sheep, and he, he, he's making this illustration to try to get a point based on the events that had just occurred in the chapter before. And he says, look, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the door but climbs in any other way is a thief. Okay, so the sheep are in the pen. The walls are high enough that the sheep can't get out. And the only way in and out is by the door, which the shepherd is guarding. The shepherd is keeping watch there. So the sheep can't get out, and so nobody can get in. And the only way to get in is through the door. But some try to get in another way. The thief, he says, try to get in another way. They don't want to come in through the door. They think they can get into the pen by jumping over the wall. And Jesus says, that's not the way it works. He says, the sheep that wants to enter is, is to enter by the shepherd. And in verse 3, the doorkeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. Okay? So the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. There are some who are looking for the shepherd, who want to hear the shepherd. And when they hear the shepherd, they know the difference between the shepherd and the thief because they know the shepherd's voice. And Jesus had come onto the scene, and the Pharisees had been doing all their preaching and their religious stuff, but, but their voice wasn't quite right. It wasn't really leading people in the right way. And then Jesus came onto the scene. And when Jesus began to preach and teach and speak, people began to follow Jesus because he was leading them. People began to see that Jesus was the way, that there was something different about Jesus. And so the people at Jesus' day that were religious and didn't care anything about God's will didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say. So Jesus makes this illustration right here, and the people don't understand it. It says that they did not understand what he was telling them. So then Jesus goes on and explains a little more in verse 7. So Jesus said again, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. He explains it really clearly. I am the door of the sheep. That is, if you want to be in God's kingdom, 
you must go through the proper door. We looked at these doors in Nehemiah, and there was a proper door for whatever thing had to come in. And for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven, there is only one door. There is not doors scattered all the way around. There's not gates. There is only one door. And they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. So Jesus comes out and tells them. He says, look, I am the door. Let's read a little further in verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and we'll come in and go out and find pasture. All right? So Jesus acknowledges, there's been a lot of folks that's come before me, and they have not done the will of God. They have not been preaching God's will. They have been bad shepherds. We see that in the Old Testament. We see that it's mentioned of, of, Israel's, of Israel's shepherds, those who were supposed to be leading them, and they were bad shepherds. They led the people astray. They led the people into sin. And Jesus said, all that came before me are thieves and robbers. They didn't care about the good of the people. But, he said, the sheep didn't listen to him. Those who really seek God were not deceived. Why? Because they know the voice of truth. They know the voice of God. They know the voice of Jesus. And when Jesus came, those who were seeking God heard that truth. They knew it was truth when Jesus began to preach it. And he says again, I am the door. Anyone that enters by me can go, come and go and find pasture. There's freedom in Jesus Christ. There's freedom to come. There's freedom to go. There's protection in Jesus Christ. All of, these, all of this symbolic language about the sheep pen and the door, the sheep pen is great. It provides protection. The shepherd is great. He provides protection. But there's also this idea of freedom that comes in Christ, this ability for us to come and the ability for us to go. And then he says in verse 10, a thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. So he's talking about these thieves. That is those who are trying to get into the sheep pen by another way than the door. He talked about that at the beginning. And what does he say? Those who came before me are thieves. And then he says here, what does a thief comes to do? A thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Somebody who is with the sheep that is not the shepherd does not care about the sheep. They care about their own whatever they can get. And there are a lot of bad shepherds in this world today. A lot of bad shepherds that, that, that want to use people for money and use their, use their opportunities that they should be preaching and teaching the Word of God to benefit themselves. And those folks uh, Jesus refers to here as the thief. And the thief comes only to uh, kill, steal, and destroy. Now, uh, in the context, he's, he's probably speaking about the religious leaders of Israel's past and of Israel's presence. But this could also <coughs> apply to Satan, too. We, we may hear it applied to Satan more than anything, although I don't know if in the context he's really speaking of Satan. But this is true for Satan. He desires to, to destroy our life in whatever way he can. Uh, so we have to be on guard of that. But Jesus said, uh, I have come not to destroy your life like the thief, but he says, I have come so that you may have life and have it in abundance. Now, we need to make sure we understand what that just said. Have life in abundance, not have an abundant life. Uh, some may say, well, God wants me to have an abundant life. Well, what does that mean? To have lots of stuff, to have lots of wealth, to have lots of health, and all these other things that we may want. But that's not what the Scripture says. It does not say that Jesus came so that we could have an abundant life. He said it, he, he came so that we could have life in abundance. It is 
What is, what is it that we have an abundance of? It is life. We have an eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus came. Not so we would be killed and destroyed, but that so we would have an abundance of life, a life that would never end, a life that is everlasting. In verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Now, not only is Jesus the door, Jesus is both in this example. He talked about the door. He talked about the shepherd. But Jesus is the door, the only way by which people can enter the kingdom of God. But he is also the good shepherd, the one who leads God's people into God's kingdom and the only one by which we can go into the kingdom. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired man and doesn't care about the sheep. So Jesus is pointing out some of the bad shepherds that have come before. They didn't, they didn't really care about God's people. They didn't do what they could to, to lead God's people in the way of God. They led them in the way of sin. They led them in the way of destruction. And there may be lots of shepherds today that are leading God's people in a way of destruction, that are not leading them in the commands of God and not leading them to Jesus Christ, not leading them to the door. And Jesus said they don't care about the sheep. But Jesus said, here's what's different about me. Here's how you can know that I am the good shepherd because I will die for my sheep. Now that's a good shepherd right there. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I will lay down my life for my sheep. Now that's what you want, right? You don't want somebody that's gonna shepherd you and lead you off the side of a cliff and lead you to some form of destruction or take advantage of you and says, hey, you're not important for me. You're just somebody I can use to get what I want. That's not a good shepherd. And we don't want to follow people like that. So we want to make sure that we don't follow bad shepherds that are not accurately at, at preaching the word of God, that are, not, that, are not, that are not living a godly life, that are not pointing us to Jesus Christ and glorifying God and glorifying Jesus Christ and all that is done. Those are bad shepherds. But Jesus says, I am a good shepherd, and I lay down my life for you. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me, as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. So there's, there's a choice that, that everybody has to make, and that is what voice are we listening to? Are we listening to the voice of the thief? Are we listening to a voice that seeks to destroy us? Are we listening to the Savior who did indeed give his life? He said, look, I'm the good shepherd. I will lay down my life for the sheep, and Jesus did just that. So which voice are we listening to? Do we know the voice of God? Do we know what God calls us to? Well, we, we can learn that by reading God's word. We can learn that by prayer to try to discern and say, all right, God, help me to hear from you. Let the Holy Spirit convict me and reveal things to me and help me to understand how you want me to live. And we need to make sure that we are listening to the right voice, the voice that's going to lead us to God and lead us to good and not lead us to destruction. And then he, he said there in that last verse that we read, he says, But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. All right, so what is he talking about there? Well, I think it's pretty simple what he's talking about, but I'll give you something that, that was once presented to me that may be what he's talking about, and that is that perhaps there are other people on other planets that God has created, and that's what Jesus meant when he, he said, I have sheep of another fold. And I suppose that that certainly could be possible. Scripture doesn't say that God doesn't have other plans with other people. But I do not think that that's what this is saying in the context. I think sometimes maybe we try to stretch and look a little too far and really try to look for some kind of dramatic meaning and things in Scripture that really is not what Scripture said. I think what he's saying here is much more simple than that there are life on other planet and there are other people than people in this world. I think what Jesus is saying is... I came for my people, that is the Jewish people, God's chosen people. But there is another people that I've come for, and that is the Gentiles. And that's what Jesus' ministry was, to the Jew first, to the people of Israel first, and then to the Gentiles. When Jesus came, he didn't die just for the sheep of Israel. He died for any sheep anywhere in the world who would put their faith and trust in him. And so when Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also I think he's simply talking about the Gentiles. He came and he preached to the, to, the, to the Jews. And as we just saw in the previous chapter, the Jews rejected him. But he's bringing the good news. He's telling them he's the sheep. He's telling them he's the door. And he's saying, come on in. But you can only come in through me. And so if you're trying to do it another way, give up. But he says, come on in through me. And all of you that want to come in, come in. But I'm also going after the other fold. I'm also going after another flock. And then he says, then there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people. All people have the same opportunity, whether they are a Jew or whether they are a Gentile. There is no distinction. There is only one. Now, I know that this is not a popular view among many Christians who still, who still said Israel is still separate from the church. They're two, separate, they're two separate entities, that God is still working separately through Israel and separately through the church, but I do not think that Scripture teaches that, and this is one verse that I think would say that that is the case. Then there will be one flock. There are not two flocks. We are not two flocks. There are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who are in Christ, and there are those who are not in Christ. There are Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ, part of that one flock. There are Jews and Gentiles who are not in Christ, and they are not part of the flock. There is only one flock, and that is followers of Jesus Christ. And there is only one Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. And Jesus says here, if you want to be in my flock, I've come to you, children of Israel, but I'm also going to the people of the other nations. I'm also going to the rest of the world. I come to you first because you're God's chosen people. You're the people of the promise. I have come through you as the Messiah. God has laid that plan out, but I have not come just to you. I have come to everybody. And that's why Jesus says when he talks about the parable of the vineyard, look, he says, I'll take my vineyard away from those who I've given it to, and I will give it to others who will do right by it. Now, I'm paraphrasing there, but God's people did not do right. God provided for them. He gave them the vineyard, and they did not live for him. They rejected him. They killed the prophets, and they killed Jesus. And Jesus says, I have done all I can do. Therefore, you listen to me, 
You enter through me, I am the shepherd, I am the door, or you don't. But if you choose not to enter through me, there is no other way that is coming. There is no other way to enter into the kingdom of God. So what about us? Have we entered into the door? There is no back door. There is no, there is no 12 or, 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 or 13 or 100 gates around the kingdom of God that we're going to somehow slip in another way. That God's going to somehow look at us and say, yeah, I know you didn't ever follow Jesus, but you were really good and did a lot of good things, so I'm going to let you come in the back door. That's not how it works. There is no back door to the kingdom of God. There is Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. He is the door, and he is the good shepherd, and he says, follow me. Now, are you going to be sheep? Are you going to be are you going to be cattle? You know, sheep sheep follow. Sheep can be led. But cattle have to be herded from behind. They have to be pushed. Well, Jesus isn't he isn't a cattle herder. He's not going to push us into the kingdom of God, but he will lead us into the kingdom of God if we'll follow. <coughs> and we need to be sheep that are willing to follow Jesus right through the door and be part of his kingdom. Let's pray. God, we come to you. We thank you for these good words and we we thank you for how you're working through Nehemiah and, and rebuilding these walls and rebuilding these doors. But, God, we got, we got better walls and better doors that are, that are far safer and far better, and that is Jesus Christ. He gives us the protection, not a physical wall around us, but, God, Jesus gives us the protection by, by his blood that forgives us of our sins and, and frees us from our sins and, and the power of them. And so, God, we thank you for that. God, we have better better doors and gates than those we read of in Nehemiah with bars and wood and whatever they used to build them with, dear Lord. We have, we have a better door in Jesus that we can enter through. And so, God, I pray that as we read about Jesus tonight as being a good shepherd, God, that we follow him because he came to lead us. He won't force us into your kingdom. He can't. God, we have to make that choice. And so I pray, God, that if there's one here tonight that has not made the choice to follow Jesus, that they would that they would follow his leadership, that they would follow him and know that he loves them greatly and gave his life for them. And God, I pray that we would enter through the door, the only door in Jesus, and not try any other way, not put our trust in any other things that we do, but God, that we trust in Jesus alone because who else can we trust in? And God, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.